Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the first time an American president joined a picket line in support of a strike, which will happen on Tuesday in Detroit when Biden joins the UAW strike against GM and Stellantis, sparing Ford, who UAW President Sean Fain says are negotiating in good faith. Joining us is Nelson Lichtenstein, research professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center on the Study of Work, Labor and Democracy. He's the author or editor of 17 books, including a biography of the labor leader, Walter Ruther, and The Retail Revolution, How Walmart Created a Brave New World of Business, and The Right and Labor in America, Politics, Ideology and Imagination. And his latest book, co-authored with the late Judith Stein, is A Fabulous Failure, the Clinton Presidency and the Transformation of American Capitalism. Then we look into how shaky Xi Jinping's hold on power in China is as top leaders are mysteriously disappearing without explanation, including the former foreign and defense ministers. Joining us is Perry Link, who holds the Chancellorial Chair for Innovation Teaching Across Disciplines and is also a professor of comparative literature and foreign languages at the University of California, Riverside. He's one of the world's foremost experts on China's language, culture, and people. And in the 1990s, he edited the Tiananmen Papers, a collection of documents leaked by a high-level Chinese official that helped chronicle the events that led up to and followed the pro-reform student protest in June of 1989. He was blacklisted by the Chinese government in 1996. Then finally, we'll assess the failure of journalism during the Reagan era as media, religion and politics merged to normalize a conservative agenda, as well as today's failures in the media having helped elect Donald Trump as they normalize him on a CNN town hall and on Meet the Press and still dance to his tune. Joining us is Diane Winston, who spent over a decade as a journalist and is now Professor of Journalism and Night Chair in Media and Religion at the University of Southern California. She is the author or editor of several books, including Religion in Los Angeles, Religious Activism, Innovation and Diversity in the Global City, and her latest book is Writing the American Dream, How the Media Mainstreamed Reagan's Evangelical Vision. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, Background Briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Nelson Lichtenstein, who's a research professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor and Democracy. He's the author or editor of 17 books, including a biography on the labor leader, Walter Ruther, and State of the Union, A Century of American Labor, Achieving Workers' Rights in the Global Economy, The Retail Revolution, How Walmart Created a Brave New World of Business, and The Right and Labor in America, Politics, Ideology and Imagination. And his latest book, co-authored with the late Judith Stein, is A Fabulous Failure, The Clinton Presidency and the Transformation of American Capitalism. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nelson Lichtenstein. 
Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And before we get into the fabulous failure, what do you make of the strike by the UAW? And and it seems that this new UAW president, Sean Fain, is quite, I mean, he's obviously much more aggressive and passionate and I think much more capable than his predecessors. And, of course, there was some corruption in the in the UAW as well. But he seems to be also pretty savvy strategically by now having United Auto Workers Union workers walking out of 38 GM and Stellantis parts that, that create parts for distribution in 20 states. And he's sparing Ford because he says they're actually negotiating seriously. So... He seems to be driving a wedge there. What do you what do you think of his tactics? I think I think he's doing a very good job, and and it's a sort of a whole team. It's not. I mean, Fain was elected as part of a whole insurgent Democratic slate. Um, he sort of squeaked in, but others got uh, elected in a, in a, by large majorities. Um, yes, yes, he's he's more aggressive. He's sort of channeling uh, the rhetoric and the and the and the the plans of the old Walter Ruther and 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 the Bernie Sanders and he he may hey he's very good his speech his speeches are getting better and better and I think that um, he's using the public support for labor which is at a very good high right now uh, and he's channeling that and and, and that's boistering the strike uh, the you know the, the parts depot they're striking means that. Some of these parts depots, there aren't like a lot of auto workers in the area, but lots of other people will come out on the picket line in support. I think that's a, that's a, a building public support. And he has done something never done in American history. He has he has made it so that the president of the United States is going to appear on a union picket line. Now, I'm a la- I'm an historian, I <laughs> labor historian, and I. Know of no other time that's ever happened in American history, so that's quite remarkable. And he's got, and he's got the cat, the other candidate, Trump, who's also trying to make hay as well. So that uh, that's I think I mean the strike is fundamentally, it's not just an economic strike; it's a political strike, in the sense that he's that it's in it's in tandem with and tension with, but both with the Biden administration's, you know transition to a green economy, reindustrialization in the Midwest, uh, and the issue is on what basis will that take place? High wages, good union jobs, or a kind of, as Spain says, race to the bottom. That is, many of these companies, and certainly the Toyotas and Teslas of this world, would, would like to have low-wage um, uh, battery plant workers uh, producing the, the, crucial ingre- the crucial element of the new uh, uh, electric vehicles. So on Friday, President Biden said, on Tuesday, I will go to Michigan to join the picket line and stand in yeah. solidarity with the men and women of the UAW as they yeah. fight for a fair share of the value they helped create. And, of course, yeah. uh, he's preempting Trump, who's arriving the right. following day. Yeah. Incidentally, though, Nelson, you know, I think it was over 40 percent of UAW workers voted for Trump. So that's in itself yes. a little no, no, Right. No, 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 no. Both Fain and Biden are in their own ways, you know, fighting to to you know win the loyalty of those of the of those Trump you know voters or other voters, in not, and not just in the UAW. Absolutely, if Fain can win big here, it will say, look, here's how to uh, 
uh, you know, improve your life and, and, and get a better life, you know, through the union, through progressive politics, through, you know, through uh, uh, solidarity, etc., not not through ethno-nationalism. And that will be, and, and Biden, of course, agrees with that. So there's a kind of, while there's a certain tension there, I think it's a very creative tension um, uh, between Biden and, and Fain and the U.S., and, and, and they're both kind of playing off of each other. And, and in a way, they, they will both will win if, if either one wins. I, mean, I think if, if, if the UAW wins, Biden will take this to the t- 2024 election and say, hey, I backed the, this union and the workers. And now, look, they got, they got a 30 percent increase in, 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 in wages and they have COLA and they, et cetera, et cetera. Stick with, you know, stick with me. I have got, I've got the program for you, you know. Sure. So he will. Well, it also probably, Nelson, might affect those. Uh, auto manufacturers down in the in the right to work states in the south, oh, right. the Mercedes right. and right. BMW I mean, and right, right, right. Except, I mean, by the way, this is all this is this is all kind of a, a mirror image of what was going on with Bill Clinton in the 1990s. Um, and there was a, one of the things I talk about in my book is a very bitter strike that took place at Caterpillar, right in the and and you know the the unions wanted Clinton in some way to come in to intervene, to help them out. They were being defeated, uh, uh, and 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 basic and Clinton would, you know he wouldn't do it. And they and, and then this legislation that was being pushed in Congress uh, to prevent companies from from really firing workers and, and replacing them. Uh, during a strike, and they'd fa- it failed. And of course, the crucial two votes that made it fail were the senators from Arkansas. So, I mean, <laughs> and so that, that was another moment. And it was 30 years ago, a very different moment. And now it's quite quite the reversal of all that. So it's it's quite remarkable. And the Republican Senator Tim Scott running for president. He oh right! I, I I put out a little tweet on this that, that South Carolina politicians are once again in the vanguard of absolute reaction. That is that is to Trump and JD Vance at least sort of have a kind of you know pseudo populist kind of workerist you know oh yeah we're for the you know working working man etc. Uh, 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 Scott and and Haley Haley says yes I'm the I'm the world's best union buster. She, she announced she uses that phrase I'm a union buster and Scott says. If if you go on strike, you, get, you should be fired, which is illegal. So, so, so even the South Carolina uh, Republican politicians are, are kind of, if it's possible, to the right of of Vance and Trump on the on this question. Yeah. So, Nelson, you brought up Clinton, and that is the title or the subject of your new book, yeah. "A Fabulous Failure: The Clinton Presidency yeah. and the Transformation of American Capitalism." And Clinton, of course, hoped to manage capitalism when he came in to the benefit of yeah. ordinary people, but he ended up right. being a booster for deindustrialization and right. deregulation. Right. So what happened? Right. Well, I mean, yeah, that's the, 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 the thrust of the book is, which is a little bit revisionist, that is, is that Clinton didn't just walk into the White House as a kind of complete neoliberal uh, or, or, or loyal member of the Democratic Leadership Council, which was a kind of right-wing element in the Democratic Party. He, he was, a, he was a, the people around him, from Ira Magaziner, Robert Reich, and others were were kind of you know they wanted they they saw Reaganism as as as, as a, a bad bad thing, and they wanted to uh, to and they could see that standard living of American workers was declining, and of course in Arkansas Clinton had was 
for 12 years as governor was trying to industrialize and and rejuvenate Arkansas. So he was he did want to manage capitalism in, in, and some of his early initiatives, the health care plan was really he he presented it as an issue of um, of how do we uh, really make American industry uh, remove lift the burden of health care from it to, to a degree. And, and, and so it can p- compete more uh, with, with Germany and Japan, which were seen as the as the major economic uh, kind of rivals at that time. Um, so, uh, I mean, there was no triumphalism at the end of the Cold War for Clinton and people like him. Uh, one of the, his uh, rivals in 1992, Paul Sangdis, said, uh, the Cold War is over. Uh, Germany and Japan won. And Clinton agreed with that, and, and, he, and he, he wanted to do something about it. So, I mean, so, but the thrust of the book is here is he, he did have some good ideas. I mean, there were, he was an opportunist as well, and there were some, but nevertheless, he had some, some very good ideas that, that actually in many ways of Biden – is putting into effect today, uh, but he failed. But but the sort of the structures uh, of 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 capital, the the nature of politics, the the kind of people he appointed, uh, other people like Robert Rubin, etc., uh, you know, subverted uh, and and defeated some of these in, in early impulses. And I guess one 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 lesson here is you, it's not enough to have some good ideas. You have to sort of know who your enemy is, know what the structures of of power are. Um, and, and have and have a kind of ideology, have at least a or, or talking points which 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 counter that. I mean, for example, in the in terms of trade, uh, uh, well, here's a little story. So, Gene in 1999, <laughs> Gene Sperling, who was Clinton's head of his National Economic Council, which was an important post, and had and he Clinton Gene Sperling clearly had the confidence of of um, Bill Clinton. And Charlene Barshevsky, who was head of the trade office, was sent, went to China, 1999, and the, the job that they did there was to really get China into the WTO, finish the negotiations, get China into the WTO, open, make sure trade was you know wide open with China, and they did that. And 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 as a result of that, I think one can make the argument, and that and that and actually Biden and Trump have both made it that you know a lot of industrial jobs in the Midwest went to China in the next decade. So just last week we learned that Biden is sending Gene Sperling, who's also in the Biden administration, and Labor Secretary Julie Su. I think they are going to go. They're going to go to Detroit. <laughs> I mean, and so I see Sperling, and probably Sperling is going to kind of put some pressure on the auto companies to, to make some concessions to the UAW. So here he's sort of thirty years later trying to you know rectify the mistake that the Clinton administration that he made in 1999. And I would say one of the arguments. This is important. One of the arguments that Sperling and Clinton and a whole bunch of other and Larry Summers and a whole bunch of other people made in the 1990s for a kind of uh, certainly opening trade with China, that was for sure, but even all sorts of other kind of deregulation and et cetera, was, well, this will ultimately cre- create more democracy. Trade will, you know, indirectly and capitalism, you know, ge- will generate a, a civil society and, and a kind of more open society. That, that, was, that was the kind of the ace in the whole argument that they made about, you know, opening trade with China, uh, even when, when other, you know, it was clear that, you know, there weren't like a lot of American jobs were going to be produced, etc. And Sperling was one of the key people who made that argument. Um, and um, so, you know, that just turned out to be false. I mean, that, that was part of the, the, the ideological illusions of the Clinton era. And of course, the other 
significant uh, mistake was uh, that Clinton undid the Glass-Steagall Act. Um, yeah. And no. that led to the 2008 crash right. where right. Greenspan, who also was a big deregulator, right. you know, what would he call it? Excessive exuberance or something. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Exuberance. Well, he, he, he said the, the stock market is, is, is exhibiting, this is uh, um, irrational exuberance. Irrational exuberance. I, I mean, that was yeah. when it just passed 6,000. Um, by the way, Greenspan was, yeah, he was, he was kind of part of this world. Uh, he was an independent force, of course, and and Clinton was often quite frustrated with Greenspan. But but Greenspan also came to the conclusion uh, in the in the mid and late nineties that um, the new there was a new economy out there, uh, which was highly productive. Silicon Valley had generated it, and also that American workers were, as Greenspan put it in testimony to Congress, traumatized. They were traumatized by the layoffs and the and the dislocations of the 80s and early 90s, and therefore they weren't demanding much. And Greenspan took those two things, high productivity in the economy and, and traumatized workers, and um, said, well, that means we don't have to raise interest rates because we can have low unemployment, but workers are going to be timid, productivity will be high, so we don't have to raise interest rates to cool off the economy. And he did keep interest rates fairly low in the late 90s, um, and that did create a boom, a uh, kind of stock market speculative boom as well. But but it did have a boom, and and unemployment went down. So that was that was. But but it was interesting that that Greenspan took took this. I mean, this is not what we want as a society where workers are fearful. This is not like the the good society. And in 1997, when the United uh, Parcels, uh, the worker Teamsters had a big strike against UPS. Uh, and it was a very good strike and successful strike. There was a, a, a discussion in, at the Federal Reserve Act, which I read the minutes, where they, they think, well, gee, Willikers, I guess workers are no longer traumatized. Maybe we're going to have to raise interest rates to, to put the kibosh on this. I mean, that, I found that very interesting. That, that, and today, you know, well, today the Fed is raising interest rates because workers are not traumatized. They're feeling their oats. And, and you know, I, I mean, and, you know, this is now a subject of enormous debate. Uh, uh, you know, as soon as the workers are, are feeling uh, uh, aggressive and, and militant, then the, the Fed tries to put the kibosh on that by raising interest rates. So right just now. in the last couple of minutes, then, I just wanted to, yeah. you know, just to summarize your new book, Nelson, yeah. we've discussed how the liberals uh, like Robert Reich and Laura Tyson yep. and Joe Stieglitz were sh- yep. shunted aside by right. Robert Rubin and Larry Summers and that Wall Street's right. influence yep. increased and undermined domestic manufacturing and eviscerated the labor movement. And, of course, uh, Robert Rubin, Larry Summers and Al Gore were all champions right. of financialization plus right. they were techno-utopians thinking that Good Silicon faith. Valley yep. would change the world yep. for yep. the better. And, of course, at the same time, Clinton divided his own party when he relied on Republican votes to overhaul welfare and liberalize trade and deregulate banking and the telecommunications industries. And we know about NAFTA and we also know about the safe harbor laws that prevent the big tech companies from taking responsibility for what uh, they put out over their platforms. Um, right. So yeah. that is a, a pretty shaky legacy there. But yeah, I just, mean, yeah, I mean, just, the, the, right. The Clint, I mean, interestingly, the Clinton Clintons are in the doghouse today and have been really ever since Bernie Sanders arrived on the scene. Bernie didn't have to really criticize them in a kind of direct way. He just said, "Here's what I stand for," and you know that meant. And, and so Bill Clinton and Hillary, who 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 were giving speeches at Goldman Sachs, and you know they they weren't mendacious people. They weren't 
corrupt in the way that some people were Republicans charged, and that was never there. But but nevertheless, they represented a certain kind of liberalism, which was too timid, too timid for our times, and um, and too timid really even for the 1990s. And you're right, Clinton was a dreadful party leader. He he was a terrible leader. He he divided the Democratic Party time and time again. Uh, and um, you know that's you know, one thing we've learned. You know, is that you, you, you party uh, unity, which sounds kind of prosaic, but that sometimes is pretty pretty important right. for, a, for a successful president. But just in closing, though, I'm not excusing him, but it seems to me that Clinton realized that they couldn't fund the Democratic Party with union money alone because that was drying up in part because of their oh, actions. Oh, right. but, so they turned to Wall Street for right. money, the same people right. that give money to uh, the Republicans. So yeah. is that a big part of it, that they basically... Well, well. It's all yeah, about I mean, money. We know that our politics are totally yeah, about I mean, the union, money. The union movement was in its worst shape ever in that period, both both in terms of power, but mainly even more so in kind of ideological attractiveness. It was just quite, you know, it just was, was stolid. On Wall Street, interestingly enough, uh, and, and, and neoliberalism more generally, uh, there was a kind of um, liberalish wing to Wall Street on some questions. So Goldman Sachs, where Robert Rubin came from, was very good on racial questions, on even on urban development kind of questions. On uh, they didn't care about taxes. Oh, you can have, you can put high taxes on rich people. We don't care. We make our money, uh, you know, through stock uh, manipulations and things of that sort. So there, there was a kind of this. This I mean, Robert Rubin uh, raised money for George McGovern and and voted for him in 1972. But the problem is that's not the the key thing. What the key thing that Robert Rubin and Wall Street cared about, which was disastrous, was capital mobility at all costs. And that meant you couldn't really control your own economy because, you know, if, if capital can flow easily and everywhere and trade as well, it really does deprive uh, governments of, of control and, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and levers. And so uh, that's, what, that's what they really cared about, deregulation, of course. So on the one hand, you could be a kind of racial liberal, but on the other hand, if you're, if you're you know, uh, barking uh, deriv- derivatives and, and deregulating and, and ending Glass-Steagall, I mean, these two things are in complete contradiction. Well, Nelson Lichtenstein, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Delighted to be with you. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Nelson Lichtenstein, who's a research professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He's the author and editor of 17 books, including The Right and Labor in America, Politics, Ideology, and Imagination. And his latest book, co-authored with the late Judith Stein, is A Fabulous Failure, The Clinton Presidency and the Transformation of American Capitalism. We're going to take a brief station break back looking into how shaky Xi Jinping's hold on power in China is as top leaders are mysteriously disappearing without explanation, including the former foreign and defense ministers. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Perry Link, who holds a Chancellorial Chair for Innovative Teaching across disciplines and is also a Professor of Comparative Literature and Foreign Languages at the University of California, Riverside. He's one of the world's foremost experts on China's language, culture and people and has translated many Chinese stories, writings and poems into English. In the 1990s, he edited the Tiananmen Papers, a collection of documents leaked by a high-level Chinese official that helped chronicle the events that led up to and followed the pro-reform student protests in June of 1989, and he was blacklisted by the Chinese government in 1996. Welcome to Background Briefing, Perry Link. I'm happy to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Perry. And it's pretty clear that Xi Jinping is a departure from the trajectory of reform and change in China following Mao Zedong with Deng Xiaoping and his successors. Mm -hmm who coupled their economy with the United States and the world and massive amounts of investment came into China and a miracle took place and the and Chinese poverty was not entirely but largely changed. So, so there's no question that the China miracle has been great for the Chinese peasant and perhaps for Wall Street. But this new leader, Xi Jinping, seems to have really departed from that trajectory. And so uh, the tensions between the U.S. and China, and even you got an Air Force general talking about how a war with China is inevitable and will happen sometime in 2025. I mean, this stuff is crazy. A war with China would be a nuclear war, and, and it would be the end of the world. We've already survived that during the Cold War. So what's your sense of whether or not Xi Jinping or to the extent to which he has changed the relationship or how culpable are we on our side for changing the relationship? Well, of course, this is a two-sided thing. It's complex. Uh, Xi Jinping did certainly change the trajectory of Chinese governance, though, when he came in in 2012. Uh, the previous two, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, were opener to the outside world, uh, better educated, more imaginative. Xi Jinping came in very well schooled in what you need to know in order to get to the top in the Communist Party of China, uh, but not very well educated and not very imaginative. And my sense of him is that in 2012, when he came in, he already felt under considerable pressure. The Chinese economy was not as certain as before, and the control of society was not as certain as before. And he came in with a sense that, gee, I have to do something. But a man of limited imagination and limited education just wasn't ready to see any new alternatives than the ones he knew, which were the Mao model. He grew up during the Mao years. He he built his career by climbing up the ladder in provincial assignments. And he knew the skullduggery of uh, Maoist-style politics, but he didn't know about the outside world. He didn't have as broad a an imagination as one would want. And so he went for the Mao model, but he is no Mao. He's not a Mao in his charisma, certainly, or his just plain intelligence. Mao, whatever you think of him, was a very wily, smart man. 
and and so I think he's out of his depth, frankly. And the, the way he handled COVID showed it fairly dramatically. At one point, saying we're going to be COVID zero, absolute zero tolerance, and it generated all kinds of resistance and uh, from from people all over China, especially in the cities where the crackdown was intense. Then he suddenly reversed himself after the youngsters got out on the streets with their white papers and said, okay, we're going to have no restrictions on COVID. And the result of that was that all of a sudden, a backlog of people with the disease started dying and the hospitals and the morgues were over. Were this kind of erratic leadership, of course, uh, generates dissent, not just in dissidents, but in rivals in the regime uh, and in the society, the the people down the bureaucracy in China are victims of his uh, anti-corruption campaign, which is just a really a way of saying, listen to me or else. So my overall feeling about his rule is that it's not nearly as stable and strong as it looks from the outside. Sometimes the Western press refers to him as a strong man. <laughs> to my ear, it seems more like he's a, a brittle man, an outside core of being strong, yes, in appointing all of his people to top positions around him. But that kind of reaction can be read as inner weakness, not as strength. Why do? Why would he sweep out everyone who might say something different from him? Because right. well, he's not secure inside. Inside. Right. I'm well, talking it, too much. I'm sorry. No, no, you're not. You're actually also describing Donald Trump. Yeah, a weak, on the strong other side, man. But, so, so, but something's going on now in China that's mysterious and has prompted uh, the U.S. Ambassador to Japan, Rahm Emanuel, to tweet, or whether it was X, as it's called now. He wrote on X, President Xi's cabinet lineup is now resembling Agatha Christie's novel, and then there were none. And he went on to list half a dozen high-ranking officials whose fates are now in question or uh, being are a puzzle. And, of course, you're talking about really high-ranking figures. China's foreign minister, Kui Yang, uh, he's disappeared, and now the defense minister... Li uh, Shangfu, yes. The, he's disappeared. So what's going on? There were five top counselors under Xi Jinping, and now two of the five have disappeared in mysterious ways. Uh, and, of course, there are all kinds of speculations and rumors on the Internet about the reasons why... And at bottom, this is a black box, and I can't see inside of it. Nobody really can. But the rumors around, which seem pretty well-founded, around Qin Gong, the foreign minister, are that he had an extramarital affair with a famous Chinese journalist in Washington, and they even had an illegitimate child together. And this got uh, exposed now, the reason why that's dangerous politically is not that it's extramarital sex. To be honest, the extramarital dalliance among Chinese officials is the norm. It's all over the place. If there were a true Me Too movement in China, there would be no end to it. So it's not the extramarital sex per se that caused the downfall. It's the fact that it got exposed. 
and therefore it became a political lever that his opponents, that is Xi Jinping's critics, could use against him. And then Xi Jinping, in my feeling anyway, was more or less obliged to get rid of Qin Gong, not because of the sexual dalliance, but because of the political threat it was to Xi Jinping's own rule. At bottom, all of these things are are political. Now, the other one, the Li Shangfu, the surface allegations against him have to do with corruption in military procurements. And that's very plausible. Corruption, like sexual dalliance, is the norm almost among Chinese officials. It's very, very common. So here again, the problem isn't that it happened, but that it made Xi Jinping politically vulnerable. There's a another military official very high and close to Xi Jinping named uh, Zhang Youxia, whom apparently this uh, Li Shangfu, who's been disappeared, uh, he himself revealed. He, he pointed a finger at these others, and that was a threat to Xi Jinping. And then again, obliged Xi Jinping to do something about him for political reasons. So the bottom line in all of this is political maneuvering within the regime. And these other things about corruption and sex are there as levers with which the political battles are fought. So there is, of course, a real slowdown in the Chinese economy and this 23% youth unemployment. And it seems like Xi Jinping is just a ridiculous uh, ideologue who's trying to solve the economic problems through ideology. Apparently he's instructing all of the big corporations, including foreign ones that are over there in China, that they have to spend like a third of their time reading the thoughts of Xi Jinping, just like the thoughts of <laughs> Mao Zedong. Yes, right, yes. Yeah. I mean, what the hell is that well, about? The uh, businesses, both domestic and foreign, that have thrived in the Chinese boom that you described a moment ago, uh, at first were good for the power of the party, but then when they got big enough to be an independent threat, then Xi Jinping and the other top leaders, but mostly Xi, uh, want to get rid of them. So the the downfall of Jack Ma, the head of the Chinese version of Amazon, and several others has been noticeable. There's been, in the last six months, quite an exodus of Chinese very wealthy people leaving for Tokyo. It's almost an overseas group in Tokyo of not only very wealthy business people, but um, fleeing intellectuals also. That reminds me, in a sense, of the early 20th century when the storm clouds against the the Qing dynasty were gathering. They gathered in Tokyo, as it happens, the same spot. So all of this is very difficult to read. One has to read all kinds of tea leaves here and there. But my sense overall is that Xi Jinping's juggernaut is not nearly as secure as he would have us believe. And it is a the outside press sometimes assumes that this is a strong man, and it's much more questionable than that, I think. Well, he's obviously very insecure. 
and he's easily slighted. You know, the Prime Minister of Canada found that out recently because she said he thought he said something that he that he didn't even say, and he got really mad at Trudeau. But well, a just, couple of months ago, Joe Biden referred to him almost inadvertently as a dictator. Uh, not meaning that to be his main point, but in passing, he made some comment about this is how dictators behave. And to your point about thin skin and insecurity, Xi Jinping had a tremendous response to that. You can't call me a dictator. And there was a lot of uh, mm. diplomatic kerfuffle over that. Well, but just recently, the, the German foreign minister, the Green Party foreign minister, she said that a victory by Russia in Ukraine could be a dangerous sign for other dictators in the world like Xi. And that really yeah. upset Xi Jinping, and he lashed yeah. out of Germany and demanded for an apology. Of course, he is a dictator, right? I and mean, that's the difference between the, the consensus model that Deng Xiaoping created and how much Xi Jinping has changed and what, given himself an extra tenure, you know, dictator for life? I yeah. mean, what, what more evidence do you want? Deng Xiaoping was also a dictator, of course, but he was more innerly secure. He knew who he was and what he was trying to do and who his allies were. Uh, my sense of Xi Jinping is that he's insecure inside. He doesn't have reliable allies, and he doesn't really have a a good inner sense of what he's trying to do with China. So, Perry, then, in the last couple of minutes, what should the U.S. be doing to avoid a war with China, which would be an insanity? And, and unfortunately, the hawks are loud in the Congress, particularly on the Republican side, but also on the Democratic side. And I just spoke the other day to Matthias Dofner, head of one of the world's largest media companies. He's written a book, The Trade Trap, How to Stop Doing Business with Dictators. And he's arguing that you know the way to avoid the, a war with China is to concentrate on of dealing with the trade situation. And China's entry into the WTO has allowed China to take advantage of the situation, whereas Obama tried the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which collapsed. But to revive something along the lines where the democratic countries of the world get together and have free trade amongst themselves and set barriers for the rest of the dictatorships that are all around the world, Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Poland, Hungary, you name it, it's happening all over. So what's your sense of how to get out of this trap of heading into a Cold War with China? The functioning of an economy on the ground, to me, means the welfare of people in the society. And I wish that the Western politicians would see the human beings on the other side of the world more clearly. The Communist Party of China and its crazy dictatorship is not the normal daily life of ordinary Chinese people. They have garden variety values that you and I and others have about wanting food, clothing, shelter, medical care, education for children, and so on. And we forget that those actual people are over there, and they, in a sense, would be the allies of the um, de democracies on the outside. If there's a way that we can keep 
them in mind. I mean, that's a very vague sort of prescription, but um, that's the way I feel. In the halls of the State Department and the Defense Department in the U.S., too often the word China is taken to be the equivalent of the voice of the Communist Party of China, indeed of its elite, when the actual ferment in China, which extends all the way to billionaires who are fleeing to Tokyo these days, is not the same voice. So we need to be tuned into these other voices in China and try to work with them, uh, if not in an explicit organization, at least in a mutual sort of understanding that we're all human beings and we're all against dictators and authoritarians. Right, because that was the opposite of what Trump did during COVID, where he talked about the China virus. You've got to make a distinction between China and the Chinese yeah. Communist Party. And right, 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 right. Trump certainly made that mistake. And Trump went over to North Korea and shook hands with Kim Jong-un and said, Dick, I can see this man's uh, eyes mean to be a good person. And I mean, oh Trump God. was just so erratic that you, we can't follow that. No. Sure. Well, Perry Link, I thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Perry Link, who holds a chancellorial chair in innovative teachings across disciplines and is also a professor of comparative literature and foreign languages at the University of California, Riverside. He's one of the world's foremost experts on China's language, culture, and people, and has translated many Chinese stories, writings, and poems into English. And in the 1990s, he edited the Tiananmen Papers, a collection of documents leaked by a high-level Chinese official that helped chronicle the events that led up to and followed the pro-reform student protests of, in June of 1989, and he was blacklisted by the Chinese government in 1996. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back assessing the failures of journalism during the Reagan era as media, religion, and politics merged to normalize a conservative agenda and as today's failures in the media have helped elect Trump as they normalize him on CNN Town Hall and on Meet the Press and still dance to his tune. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Diane Winston, who spent over a decade as a journalist. It's now a professor of journalism and night chair in media and religion at the University of Southern California. She's the author or editor of several books, including Religion in Los Angeles, Religious Activism, Innovation, and Diversity in the Global City. And her latest book is Writing the American Dream, How the Media Mainstreamed Reagan's Evangelical Vision. Welcome to Background Briefing, Diane Winston. Hi, Ian. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Diane. And just to start out uh, with Reagan, it's actually <laughs> interesting enough, it's when I started broadcasting, when he first became president in 1980. It was always astounding that the American people voted for a divorced Hollywood actor over a genuine Christian religious Jimmy Carter, who taught Sunday school. And why did the evangelicals not support 
Jimmy Carter and yet supported Ronald Reagan? Uh, you know, Ian, when you posed that question, I thought to myself, how interesting that, what, 36 years later, Americans voted for a philandering, lying, pugilistic, self-proclaimed billionaire over a Methodist, former Methodist leader, and basically Christian-oriented candidate. And in both cases, evangelicals chose the person who they thought would deliver most for them rather than the person who actually represented their values. And the latter, just to be clear, the latter election I'm thinking of was Trump versus Hillary Clinton. Now, at least in the case of Carter versus Reagan, Reagan was a Christian. Um, from my research, I have no doubt that Reagan sincerely believed himself to be Christian and um, his policies were in line with his Christian faith, which is more than you can say for Donald Trump. Now, why did the public do that? The public did that because, why did evangelicals do that rather? Evangelicals in both case voted for the candidate who they thought would deliver on their social agenda. Um, even though a true Christian stood before them both in 1980 and 2016, they opted to go with the person who would fulfill their political agenda. Well, in, in Reagan's case, of course, he did deliver, but your new book, uh, Diane Winston, says that he did this with the help of the American media. Yes, but Ian, I want to challenge you there. I don't think Reagan delivered on the agenda. The agenda in 1980 was to end abortion, to bring back um, prayer in school. That were Those were two big items on that agenda um, and to somehow reinforce the uh, nuclear heterose heterosexual family. And in fact, no one who ran as a Republican a presidential candidate until Donald Trump really, or no one who was elected president before Donald Trump delivered on that agenda, which is why evangelicals were so desperate in 2016, because for whatever reason, they believed Trump would actually give them what they wanted and had been waiting for, for all those decades. And we know now that Trump did. So Reagan promised to deliver, but Trump, did deliver. Exactly. Uh, but the one thing that those two have in common in terms of their electoral appeal, Reagan basically had this atavistic appeal of going back to the days of Ozzie and Harriet, the nuclear family, as you just mentioned, when blacks and Hispanics were invisible. And he was harking back to a halcyon day of the American dream. And Trump, of course, with Make America Great Again, is also propagating that myth. Exactly so. And, you know, to some extent, you are correct. Reagan did deliver on some of the evangelical agenda. He managed to cut taxes. He managed to cut back social 
funding for social programming. He raised the budget. He he supported the Pentagon budget. So in many ways, he did give them what they wanted. He just didn't give them the central social changes that they had hoped for. Well, in the meantime, though, of course, he used to rail against big bucks eating T-bone steaks on welfare and welfare queens. <laughs> what, what was the evangelical appeal to beating up on poor people? How did he manage to use that in the name of God or Jesus? Well, Reagan's ability to circumvent what you and I might think of as normal human decency grew out of his commitment and his understanding of Christianity. And this, again, is where the media plays such an important role. Reagan truly believed that people should be responsible for themselves. Part of his idea about what democracy was and what God wanted for this country is he believed free individuals meant people free to provide for themselves and their family. And he really saw welfare as um, preventing this outcome, which he felt was divinely, not mandated, but it, it was what God wanted. So in order to facilitate this change in American ideas, because before then, if you remember, social policy had been pretty open and there was a lot of support for people to get out of poverty as well as support for people who were impoverished. Um, Reagan began sharing this message of personal responsibility. The positive side was, you know, God helps those who help themselves. The negative side was, was creating a, a stock figure who would represent poor people and who then could be demonized as something which we didn't want to support. And that began the racialization and the gendering of poverty. So yes, the young buck was one instance of it. But if you recall, Reagan really harped on welfare queens and the idea of single black mothers um, as people who were beating the system by having children. And these were exactly opposite of the kind of roles good Christians should play. Good Christians should be married. They should um, take responsibility for their families. And the single black female on welfare was not that person. And by the media's insistent repetition on this idea, the public began even if they weren't consciously accepting it, they began seeing it as something that was going on in the country. And it was a way to pin their frustrations on a concrete object. So your new book, Writing the American Dream, How the Media Mainstreamed Reagan's Evangelical Vision, focuses on the year uh, 1983. And that was an incredibly critical year for the survival of the planet, because we almost had a nuclear war in uh, November of 83 uh, with the Abel Archer NATO exercise, so the, the Soviet leadership, the gerontocracy in the Kremlin, led by Andropov, who was 
on dialysis at the time, when Reagan in April of 83 made his evil empire speech, he made it in front of Jerry Falwell and the evangelicals who were just beaming like Cheshire cats. And, and, but that played in the Kremlin a very different way. Skrichkov, the head of the KGB, played all these tapes to Andropov and the, and the Politburo. And they became convinced that when Reagan talked about the evil empire and said that the Soviets would end up on the ash heap of history, they took that personally. And when Reagan talked about, or when Weinberger talked about nuclear decapitation, they took that incredibly personally, that a, a Pershing missile would land on the Kremlin at any moment. So there, there, <laughs> it's extraordinary how... This was the era of American virtue where God was on our side, and, but our godliness almost ended up in the end of the world. Well, Reagan truly believed that the Soviet Union was an evil empire. They did not believe in individual freedom. They did not believe in religious freedom, and they did not believe in economic or political freedom. And he wasn't simply, you know, being dramatic when he when he said they should be long on the ash heap of history or the dust heap of history. He truly meant it. Now, I don't think he would ever have pulled the trigger on a nuclear war because that was Reagan's greatest fear. He truly feared nuclear warfare. No, it, well, it's true, Diane. But, but on the on the Soviet side, they were about to preempt an imaginary first strike from Reagan, which they believed. And mercifully, there was a, a double agent working for British intelligence in London, who was able to get through Margaret Thatcher get the message to Reagan that the NATO exercise the Russians thought was a springboard for a real attack and they had to cancel the exercise right away. And I've spoken to Bud McFarlane and others that were in the room. And this was a watershed moment for Reagan when he realized as an actor, his words, the consequences of his words were that we almost had a nuclear war. We were closer than even the Cuba crisis. And that rattled Reagan. And that's why shortly thereafter, beginning in 1984, he was searching for a way to make a, a nuclear arms treaty with the Soviets, which didn't come to fruition until a year later in 85 when Gorbachev ascended to the head of the Soviet Union. Well, I guess we were all very lucky and thankful for the British agent. Yeah, <laughs> the double agent. He wasn't British. He was Russian. Ah, the Russian agent. Yeah, yeah, he's a guy called Oleg Gordievsky. But what your book tells us, though, in 83 was that Reagan was beatable, right? And that, I guess, Walter Mondale wasn't necessarily the greatest candidate. So explain to us why he turned things around with the help of the press. Um, Reagan was beatable in January and February, and maybe even in March 83. But by the time we got to the end of the year, he was pretty much unbeatable because the economy had turned around. Although I focus on basically what I'd call the uh, spiritual coding for Reagan's neoliberalism and how that made a lot of his policies palatable to the American people. 
I cannot deny the fact that if the economy hadn't turned around, Reagan would never have been elected. Now, there were many people who believe that Walter Mondale was a nicer, kinder person and wouldn't be demonizing poor people if he were elected, but they still voted for Reagan because they were doing better economically and it had been almost a decade of um, people losing jobs, of inflation, of the economy, you know, being terribly wrong. So um, we can't lose sight of the fact that Reagan Reagan did beat back stagflation in that way. That was why he was elected. However, the media, by constantly talking about Reagan's perspective on welfare, on hunger, on um, anti-communism, had inured the American people to sort of the less positive or less uh, progressive sides of his message. And so when you constantly repeat something, it it makes it normal, it makes it mainstream. And so Reagan's ideas about cutting back welfare or about arming the military um, or about cutting back government regulations or, you know, fighting strikers, where they were unpalatable to many people because they had been repeated and repeated and repeated, they were mainstreamed and they weren't as, you know, outside the sphere of normalcy as they might have been in an earlier presidency. Well, the press though, of course, gave Donald Trump in 2016, up to $5 billion worth of free advertising. Yes, it was a very sim it's a very similar idea that Trump and a lot of his messages seemed crazy to many people, but the more they were repeated in the media, it's not like people fell in love with him, but they became more used to it. Um, and, you know, for all the people in America who do believe that women are second-class citizens and, you know, open for sexual desire. By repeating Reagan, uh, Trump's attitudes and his behavior towards women, um, it, it normalizes them. So yes, I think Reagan and Trump both were able to capitalize on the fact that many journalists aren't that thoughtful about the reverberations of their coverage. And one thing as journalists that we could take away from this is realizing that the more we repeat a really screwed up message, I happen to think that both Reagan and Trump had screwed up messages and policies, but the more it's repeated and repeated and repeated without critical comment, the more problematic it becomes. So just in closing then, Diane, what does that say about the the election season that we're heading into in this critical election of 2024, which many believe that if Reagan, if <laughs> slip of the tongue, if Trump is reelected, that will be the, the, the beginning of American fascism and the end of American democracy. I, well, as someone who teaches young journalists and as a quasi-journalist myself, 
I think we really need to think long and hard about how we cover Trump. And yes, it's one thing to cover factual information, uh, like the indictments and the trials. It's another thing to put him on 60 Minutes or meet the press and let him just say whatever the heck he wants to say and get it out there. Reagan has messages which appeal to some people, um, but are anathema to others. But by putting in, putting those terrible messages in the public square and hearing them over and over and over again, um, people have a sense of hopelessness or people have a sense of maybe this is normal or people who thought this was abnormal begin thinking that this is okay. So I don't think journalists have really taken this seriously. And I think that's because journalism is part of a corporate system that enforces a status quo and Trump is great clickbait and Trump gets eyeballs. And so they let Trump keep talking about all his bullshit. So yes, I think if Trump were reelected, it would be horrible for our democracy because unlike Reagan, who I do believe had a central core of Christian Christianity and decency and who was not out to destroy the Republic, Trump, unlike Reagan, Trump only thinks about himself and in, in large, enlarging his wealth and getting more power and and doing whatever he wants to do, like watch TV and eat hamburgers. That was not Reagan. And the fact that the American people don't see how Trump would harm democracy is is incredible to me. I, I There must be so much anger and hatred among people in this country to think that Trump could ever ever act positively for the benefit of the United States. Well, Diane Winston, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And I've been speaking with Diane Winston, who spent over a decade as a journalist and is now a professor of journalism and night chair in media and religion at the University of Southern California. She's the author or editor of several books, including Religion in Los Angeles, Religious Activism, Innovation and Diversity in the Global City. And her latest book is Writing the American Dream, How the Media Mainstreamed Reagan's Evangelical Vision. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Oh,
Disappear.